pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us your son, Emmanuel. God is with us. And we pray that you would, um, in the next few moments, uh, help us to truly understand what that means for our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Isaiah 9. You know, as I was sitting there, um, I was struck with this idea that I, I feel this every Christmas. It doesn't matter what, what the winter is like or what's going on in my life. Um, people go crazy at Christmas time. I mean, it's, um, it's everywhere. You drive down the street and people have lights. There's a lot of lights, all kind of colored lights everywhere wrapped gifts and traditions and everything. and um, The irony always strikes me. The, the irony, that, you know, this, this idea that Christmas is everywhere, but, but we miss Christ somehow. I don't... I mean, with a country that spiritually is kind of going continually off the grid in terms of Christianity... Uh, Christmas is still a very prevalent thing, but how, how do we miss? We get the story. I think if you uh, did like Jaywalk All-Stars or something, you know, where you take the microphone and, and you just go through the city and put a microphone in people's face, say, what's Christmas about? I think they'll give, they may miss a few details, but they'll give you the basics. Uh, but we know the story of Christmas, but somehow we're, we're missing, we're missing the purpose of it. This week, my family and I did a puzzle. And we were doing this puzzle, and you know, you start with the borders, and that wasn't too hard. And then we get to the, the middle of the picture, and I'm going, this is, this is much more difficult than I'm used to in a puzzle. And then it dawned on me, I'm like, I'm missing something, the picture. You know, you get a, a puzzle box, and you put the box right there, and then you start doing the puzzle, and you look at the picture on the box. Oh, I see the house goes here, and the horse is on the left side of the house, and you start doing the puzzle. I didn't have that. I just had pieces. Little colors and little blurry images and little stuff that didn't make any sense until you put it together. And it was hard to figure out how to put it together because I didn't have the big picture. I, th- I think you and I go throughout life with a bunch of puzzle pieces. I have a little piece called finances and I have a little piece called marriage and a little piece called kids and a little piece called friends and a little piece called hobbies. And we do these little pieces and Christmas becomes one of those pieces. Okay, it's, it's, it's December 24th. We do something for Christmas Eve. You don't want to be lame. What are you doing for Christmas Eve? Sitting at home? That's lame. You at least want to say you went to a church service or hung, hung out with some friends, something, right? You know, that, but it's a piece in the midst of a bunch of other pieces. What's, what's the big picture, though? I mean, what is the purpose of Christmas? I don't know about you, but I have this sort of natural bent against tradition. Um, I, I have a cousin who's in ministry, and I, we love each other, and we talk, and we discuss, but his church, they do things very traditionally. You know, one time he asked me, uh, Lucas, so what kind of robe do you wear? I'm like, I don't wear a robe. <laughs> Why? You don't preach in a robe? Why not? I'm like, because it's corny. I don't know. No, no it's not corny. <laughs> I didn't tell him that. I didn't tell him. I said, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to look like Judge Judy. I don't know. I don't wear a robe. <laughs> Um, no, but I didn't knock it. We just joke with each other back and forth. But I learned from his traditions. He learns from mine. But, um, but for some reason, for me, 
uh, a lot of repetitious uh, things that we just do. It just becomes a drone to me, and, and I, it's hard for me to connect with that. Um, but what I've learned from him is that rather than ditching traditions, if you take a tradition, understand its meaning, then suddenly that tradition becomes rich. Rather than moving away from it, you embrace it because of its purpose. I think we need to do that with Christmas. I want to take you to Isaiah 9 really briefly. This is a passage we read all the time. It's another one of those things like Wonderful Counselor, you know, it's like, but what's really going on? There's a king of Judah. Judah, Israel was split between Israel and Judah. And the Egyptians were kind of waning already. The whole Egyptian era was passing. But the Assyrians, they were the top dogs now. And they were conquering. They were taking over. There was this impending invasion. And King Ahaz is like, uh, I read the stories of like God and Abraham and like God, but and I'm thoroughly Jewish and I believe in Yahweh and everything, but we actually have to do something here. I mean, talking about God and everything's real nice. Having our traditions at the temple, that's real good and everything, but we're about to to, to get mopped right here. Uh, I might have to call on some pagan nations to step in here. God sends his prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah said, King, don't do it. Don't, don't do that. Don't ditch. It's not just traditions. It's not just religion. God is real. God will step in and take, you have to turn to him. If you turn to some other gods or some other nations, you won't, you, God won't have your back. You, you, you'll be missing this thing. And so Ahaz is, is contemplating this whole thing. Isaiah said, God is going to give you two signs. One now, one future. And the one now, Isaiah said, I love it because my wife is about to have a couple babies and God told me what to name them. And God told me to tell you that before my kids can say, Mama, Dada, before they can say that, this you're going to see how God starts playing out in this situation. He's going to step in and do this. So you and I know that that doesn't take a real long time for the kids to get to that stage. And so that was an immediate sign. Then he gave him a second sign. There will be a child. There's going to be a virgin. And this virgin has a child. And that child takes the government of the world on his shoulders, and he finally fixes everything. Now, many people think, well, that second one wouldn't make any sense to Ahaz. I mean, imagine you, were, you had a problem, and I came to you, and I said, I've got a message from the Lord. You know, thousands of years from now, God is going to do something awesome. So take that to the bank. I'll see you later. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you'd be like, okay, even if I believe you, Lucas, that's great for then. What does that have to do with me now? And so I think so when people read this, they go, wait a minute, that can't be. Maybe somehow like when, when Matthew told us that the baby that was born to a virgin, it was actually Jesus. Matthew is kind of like using it like an analogy, but it wasn't really Jesus. Really, something happened back then. But I don't think that's the case. Because I think the reason why we think that way is because we have a problem. Our problem is that we only look at immediate solutions and we don't look at the big picture. Now, our problem is that we're so focused on this piece of the puzzle, we refuse to look at the box and go, oh, this is a picture of a barn. We're just like, what is this red little piece? I don't understand. Is it, what is it? Santa Claus hat? What is this thing? Maybe look at the big picture to understand what it is. And so Isaiah came to, to Ahaz and said, look, I'm going to give you the immediate solution. 
a sign of my children or what their names are going to be, and that before they reach a certain age, you're going to see how God starts handling the Assyrians. That's an immediate thing. That's good. But does that really fix the problem? I mean, is that, is that the real issue? He goes a little deeper. In, in Isaiah 9, here's how the prophecy starts. He says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Now, before we move forward, Isaiah's using darkness as an analogy, obviously. He's not saying, the power grid went out uh, in Judah, and we have a problem. So somebody start reconnecting the wires. No, he's talking about something spiritual. He's talking about something cultural, uh, social. I mean, this is this is a huge scene where darkness is a metaphor. He's not saying it's literally dark. The sun just disappeared. But but there's something, people are in darkness, fumbling about. What is it like when, when the lights go out and you're fumbling around, you're looking for your flashlight, you're stubbing your toe, elbowing your wife? It's a mess because you can't see. He's saying people can't see, they're bumping around, the Assyrians are attacking, everyone's scared. You get scared in the dark, right? He's like, that, I understand that situation. God is going to address that situation. But as the prophecy unfolds, he moves away. He kind of left in chapter 8, he talked about the immediate one. Now he's going to talk about the future one. And I think Ahaz cared. I think is Judah cared when he start, moves to the future one. He didn't check out like, okay, I just care about the Assyrians. I really don't care about the universe and the cosmos and like everything getting wrapped up thousands of years from now. Really don't care about that. I don't think so. I think he wanted to hear what, what is the big picture. I'm sick of looking at the little puzzle piece. Show me the box. I want to see what's happening. So I think Isaiah had his attention. If you think about a guy who has problems with his lawn, and he looks out on his lawn, there's ditches everywhere, little holes everywhere. And he goes to Home Depot and he gets the soil and he gets the seed and he patches up the holes and he fixes and then he puts the grass to grow and then more little holes show up. And what's he do? He gets the shovel and he gets the soil and he patches up those other holes and then, and then more little holes show up and he keeps happening and his neighbor's looking at him like, is this guy crazy? And he pulls him aside and says, what are you doing? What do you mean what I'm doing? I got holes. I'm patching them. That's not what you're supposed to do. What am I supposed to do? You got a mole problem. You could patch, you could repatch the lawn all day long. What are you going to have next week? I mean, you're just playing games with the moles. You're like, oh, thank you. Keeping the lawn fresh for me to destroy. That's very nice of you. You've got to attack the moles. You got to get the moles out of the lawn, right? See, the, the repatching the lawn, that's the immediate solution. You've got to get underneath to find out what, what is the real deal? What's the real issue going on here? What is the big picture? You know, we don't want to just treat the symptoms. I want to handle the disease. You, you, don't, you want to get underneath to find out what, what is causing the deep darkness. And so he, he tells them there's a deep darkness in the land. It's not just the Assyrians tacking. It's a bigger problem than that. He moves through and tells them that there will come a time when the nation is multiplied. Verse 3, joy is increased. They rejoice before the Lord at the harvest. Then he moves down to the familiar verse in verse 6. He says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. You know what I just noticed when I was read earlier for us by Dan? I, I, I thought it said Shoulders. I don't know how long it takes for me to hear a verse and then shoulder, like a knapsack. I mean, this is just my shoulder. This is a powerful, this is, this is a powerful person. 
The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You know why the translations put all those in capital letters? You know why we do capital letters? Proper names, right? If somebody printed the bulletin and said, Sermon by Pastor Lucas Small L, I'd be like, What's up with that, man? I'm getting downgraded. It's not, you know, we put capitals in the front of our names. You're a person. You know, this, this, but this is capital because not just a wonderful counselor, but the wonderful counselor. Not God small g, God capital G. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. This is God. Well, how, how can it be God? You just said a child is born. Are you switching things on? I'm not switching things on you. It has, it, Isaiah is saying, there's going to be a child who's born. He's human. That human is not just human. He's also fully God. That's Jesus. That, I mean, that's the one they were waiting for since the garden. Adam and Eve messed up, and God's like, ooh, that's a big mess. First of all, get out. Kick them out of the garden. I said, but you're going to have a seed. Eve is going to bear somebody that bears somebody that bears somebody, and eventually it's going to culminate in somebody who handles this forever. Handles the whole box, the whole picture is handled in this one person. So this isn't new. Isaiah is saying this is going to be a sign later, but I'm specifically telling you it's going to be born from a virgin. A child will be born. The virgin part is in chapter 7. He says, a child is born. To us a son is given. Government on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. I don't know how many of you have read through the Bible like because mom told you to or... I don't know, or you went to Moody and it was homework. I don't know. You read through the whole thing, like straight through. And you get one king, and then he's bad, and he goes down. One king, oh, he's pretty good, but he still dies. And then the next king, he's bad, and he goes down. And then another king, he's pretty good, but he dies. And it's up, and it's down, it's up and down. You read the judges before the whole king thing, and the judges rise up, but the judge dies. What happens when the judge dies? Everything spins out of control. Another judge is needed. It's up and down, up and down. I remember my first time reading through the Old Testament, I kind of got like... I'm sick of this already. It's up, it's down, it's up and down. It's like, well, that, that, that was the point. This will always be up and down, up and down, roller coaster ride until somebody can establish peace forever. And it has to be somebody that can handle the root of the problem, not somebody that's really good at patching the lawn. It's got to be somebody that can handle the whole puzzle, not just fix a couple pieces in your life. And this is, has to be somebody who's eternal, the source of life, the only one that could... Pre- Provide peace to the increase of his government of peace. There will be no end, no more roller coaster, no more up and down, no expiration date on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I love that. God is zealous to fix this problem. God is zealous to get underneath life and fix the deep darkness. God is zealous to make sure you obtain everlasting peace, real, genuine joy, not quick fix-its from your hobbies and from your girlfriend and from your your new job. Those are quick little, it makes me feel nice for a little while, but eventually the roller coaster again, boom, crashing down, and then the next thing in life. God, God is zealous to make sure you get beyond that, get past that, get something eternal, something forever. And he sent somebody to do that. And that's why the baby came in the manger. See, it comes back to the, the, the idea of Christmas. It's not a season. It's not just something nice to do in the wintertime. It's not just, oh, look at the cute little cuddly baby in the, 
and the Magi surrounding him in, in their bent, holy-looking positions and just admire a statue. No, th- there's a story, and the story accomplishes a purpose. And that purpose is something deep. If I take you back to that initial verse, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. You can't, you can't appreciate light until you understand darkness. And my friends, darkness is not just terrorist attacks. It's not just job loss. Darkness is not just the loss of a loved one. Those are painful things. Darkness is much, much deeper than that. I'm going to, I'm going to just read you one more verse before we close. Listen to what this says. This is John. And I think John read, John read him a lot of Isaiah. Started in chapter 1, quoting this darkness stuff. Then chapter 3, remember that verse, For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, whosoever believeth in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. Trickle down a couple verses from that, and this is what you would read. He says, Light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness. You ever you're reading a book, a novel, or something? You're reading the sentence. You're like, I get what he's saying, and then the sentence has a turn. You're like, that's not how I thought he was going to say. Or you talk, someone's talking to you, they pause, and you try to finish their sentence, and they're like, oh no, that's not what I was trying to say. I was trying to say this. That's how I feel when I read this. You think it says, the light has come into the world, and the people loved it. That's the opposite of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying the light came into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. It's like when you walk into the attic and you flick on a light and the spider or the bug or whatever just scatters. I mean, it doesn't like the light, it doesn't want to be exposed. We don't want our bad stuff exposed. I have people that I know personally. That tell me, why do you preach about sin? That's why. Why do you want? Why do you want to make people don't come to hear about how bad they are? I'm like, I know they don't come because they want to hear how bad they are. Neither do I. But every time I read scripture, it's like, bam, you're messed up. You need God. You know what Christmas is about? It's not fixing world problems. Christmas is not about fixing you know world peace. It has to do with that. It culminates in that. It doesn't start there. It starts with me. And how even in my preparation today, running here and getting my sermon notes, making sure, and me and Tina, making sure the kids are ready and we've got our ridiculous ties on, you know, and and we're matchy-matchy and it's cute and everything and we love it. We love Christmas. But underneath it is this sort of boiling like tension. And, and if you don't check it, you're missing Christmas completely because you're, you're, you're saying things you don't mean and you're rushing around and you're completely missing the real deal. And what Jesus is saying is that the real deal is light exposing your darkness. Not the person you want to elbow next to you. Now, uh, can you get a recording of this? Because I have a cousin. You really need a... No, you. <laughs> right? Me. We have, we have a deep darkness. And it's so deep we could never crawl ourselves out of this pit, guys. We can't, we can't walk out of it. You might say, I'm not a drug dealer. I'm not a murderer. That, that's... That's not the only form of deep darkness, I'm sorry to tell you. As soon as your child wants to snatch a toy from its sibling, it's already starting. There's something inside of us that's selfish, it's self-centered, it's self-reliant, it's self-dependent, opposite of what we were created to be. 
That's darkness. We have to come to a point where we want to be rescued from that. Now, I don't know why you're in here this morning, and I'm not, I'm not picking up people who I don't normally see here. Uh, we love to have those of you that come out and, and spend this time with us. Some of you, maybe I see you every Sunday. And your real reason for coming to church is maybe something other than being rescued from deep darkness. Maybe it's something else. Maybe because you want friends. Maybe because you grew up going to church. What's the, you know, you got to keep it going. But, but until you recognize there's, there's a deep darkness, instead of looking at the paper and going, look how sinful people are, you have to come to a point where you recognize your own stuff that you can't do anything about. You can't in a million years say, God, I'll work it off. It, this is not what Christmas is about. God sent his son because no one else could do it. No one else could bear the government on his shoulders. No one else can repel deep darkness. No one else can be that light. It's Jesus. You know why he had to be fully God and fully man? Because only man can pay for man's guilt. But only an eternal being can pay an eternal price. So God took his son in full deity and wedded him, fused him with full humanity. He understands temptation. He understands pain. He understands heartache and sadness. And he walked the life that we could never walk, paid a price that we could never pay. And that's the mission of the baby in the manger, to rescue us. I, I think we, 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 we know Christmas, but, but do we really know Christ? Um, I think we have to come to grips with our problem and understand that we need Jesus for a complete rescue. Jesus isn't just a symptom solver. You know, you don't just you don't just come to Jesus because you need a job. You don't you don't come to Jesus because you're sick and I, I, I want him to heal me. Well, my marriage is struggling. I'll come to Jesus now. Maybe he'll fix my marriage. I mean, that you don't come to Jesus because he's going to solve little puzzle pieces. You don't come to Jesus because I can't keep up with all the lawn patches. Can Jesus patch them? No, Jesus is gonna He's gonna turn that lawn upside down and go, here's we're starting from square one. Your lawn is horrible. You need a new one. That's hard work. It's heart-wrenching sometimes to come to that place where you just understand how far you are in that deep darkness. Um, Ernest Hemingway was born not too far from here in Oak Park, Illinois. Um, I don't know if, if his parents were, were real Christians, but Oak Park, very different now, but Oak Park was very conservative, very churches on every corner. Frank Lloyd Wright and other natives had mentioned sometime that there's churches everywhere, good churches for people to go to, and he made that comment. And, and Ernest Hemingway, he grew up in a house where uh, there was devotionals. They went to church. He heard the Bible stories. But he firmly rejected, you know, had nothing to do with Christ, rejected Christianity. He goes on to be a Nobel Prize winner for his writing and a Pulitzer Prize winner for his writing. I picked up one of his books not too long ago, The Old Man in the Sea. Many of you have read it, I'm sure. And um, people really love this story. I kind of had to not try not to fall asleep. But uh, about a guy who goes fishing and... That's it. It's about a guy that goes fishing. So <laughs> go pick it up at Barnes & Noble. I'm sure you'll love it. No, it is really, it's a, it's a famous, it's a classic work. 
And this old man, he's, uh, all the other fishermen laugh at him because he, he hasn't had a catch in like 80-something days. He just goes out there, he's throwing stuff in the water, nothing's coming out. Not little tiny fish, not big, nothing. I mean, nothing's happening for this guy. He goes out there, and this little boy that used to come with him, he just want to, I want to go with you. No, not today, I'm going to go by myself. No one else believing him. He goes on a lonely voyage out on the ocean. Finally gets his big catch. The catch is so big. He can't reel it in by himself. He just can't. So he takes the line and wraps it around his back. And as he's moving against this marlin that he's trying to catch, the line is lacerating his back. After a struggle with the marlin, he finally attaches the marlin to the boat. Some sharks keep coming up, and he's leaning over the edge of the, the, the rugged skiff, and he's batting the heads of the sharks so they don't eat his marlin. And his hands get caught on, on the lines, and his hands are scarred. Then the boat finally pulls in. He's too weak to carry the marlin, but he grabs his mast. The mast is detachable with the sail folded and wrapped. And he takes the mast, hoists it across his back, and starts making his ascent to his shack. And as he's making that ascent to his shack, he keeps falling. He can't handle that mast across his shoulders by himself, and he's trying to make it. Anybody see Jesus in this story yet? I mean, I was struck because I'm reading this book and I'm like, here's somebody who rejected, this, who rejected Christ, was an atheist. So he said. But he knew something about Jesus. He knew the story so well that when he wrote his own story, he couldn't move away from the cross. Calvary was infused in the story of this old man tackling the sea. Ernest Hemingway began to lose his mind, began to get depressed, began to get paranoid. And one day he walked into the foyer of his house and he ended his own life. That's grim. How does somebody who understands the power of the story of Christ so much that he would infuse it into one of his own award-winning books and still end up in darkness? I'll tell you why. It's because you can know the story and miss the purpose of the story. Christianity could be just a little puzzle piece in life that you know about, or it can be the puzzle. It could be the whole thing. That's, That's what separates the sheep from the goats, guys. That's what separates... The loss from the found, that's what separates us because you either understand I'm in deep darkness, I need to be rescued from that, I need Jesus Christ to be the light that rescues me from that. We can call it darkness, we can call it sin, we can call it lostness, whatever it is, we've fallen short of the glory of God. The only way back to God is this God-man that was born for a rescue mission. And we're the ones that need rescue. I want to invite you to pray with me before we close. Father, we, uh, tonight, um, we have a lot of different expectations of Christmas. Some of us just rub our hands together and we just can't wait till we can tear open the cellophane paper and get to those gifts. Some of us can't wait for that special, traditional Christmas Eve dinner. When is the last song so I can go eat? Some of us 
have other things. And Father, I hope that you, in this time, move our hearts to the place where we recognize it. We're tired of filling up life with a bunch of puzzle pieces that don't make sense of the whole. We're tired of recognizing we have wounds and hurts, but we, we just put band-aids on them. We, we just mask it, and we don't try to get to why we have wounds. Lord, I, I know that I'm, I'm tired of God. I'm tired of trying to patch things up myself. And I thank you, Lord, that we can turn to you, that you've sent someone to pave the path that we couldn't pave, to fit everything together in a hole that we could never do, no matter how long we stare at the different pieces we're dealing with. Lord, that you are the big picture. Help us in here this this evening to recognize that we have a deep darkness we need to be rescued from and that we can turn to you for it as our light and our Savior. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'd like you to rise as we prepare for worship.